weekend tonight uh, we're doing another part in our series on communion and maybe tonight coming down to I think the key difference certainly between Protestant and Catholic but uh, a correct understanding that in no way takes away from its depth and importance uh, as you might think it exists in a Catholic or you know in, in the idea of transubstantiation but uh, I think is going to bring an added dimension of depth in talking about uh, the real presence. And so, Frank, tell me what that might actually mean. Well, we've already talked a little bit in our previous ones about real presence, and we've already talked about uh, Anselmine atonement and a little bit about the doctrine of representation. But tonight, what I want to do is kind of focus a little bit more carefully on how we interpret some key passages and some key ideas. And to do that, what I'm going to do is quote some text here from one of Scott Hahn's talks. It's just a transcription of one of his talks. Uh, Scott Hahn is a Catholic theologian, writer, speaker, teacher. I think in the, in the Catholic world, he is probably on par with, say, C.S. Lewis in the Protestant world. He's, he's contemporary, he's right now, uh, very popular, and, mm-hmm. and so he's kind of a dynamic speaker that, that says a lot of interesting things and is really well engaged with a lot of material. I mean, he's very well read, and you can tell when he speaks, mm-hmm. but I'm still going to disagree with him. <laughs> okay. but, but I'm using him as just kind of a representation of, you know, contemporary Catholic thought. Here, here would be a an interesting contemporary Orthodox Catholic thinker. So your idea is that here is perhaps the best presentation of a Catholic understanding, and then we'll kind of look at it in a critical manner. The way I'm going to critique what he's saying is by going over one of the key passages that he's using to support his theory in this is John 6, where Jesus feeds the 5,000 and then tells them that they have to drink his blood and eat his flesh and drives them all away. Now, he uses that to support his very literal interpretation of that. And uh, what I'm going to do is kind of reread the book of John in a very summarized fashion, focusing on Peter, Nicodemus, and a couple key words, uh, king, kingdom, and ruler. So your idea, you're focusing on John. And I presume because it's precisely in John that you get the strong language from Christ about his flesh and blood. Yes, and interestingly, as we'll find out, not in the Lord's Supper. (laughs) The blood and body is not even mentioned. Yeah, so the fourth gospel, we have Jesus, just speaking generally, Jesus is making quite a few claims that astonish and confuse people. So one of them is where he commands him to eat, uh, drink his blood and eat his flesh in chapter 6, and the literal interpretation of the Catholics leads to the doctrine of real presence, and Scott Hahn's going to exemplify that. There's a very truncated story for Peter and Nicodemus in, in John. Both of those men are presented as standing at the edge of belief, and only one clearly chooses to walk in the light. Peter is shown to have an outstanding resolve to follow Jesus through even the strangest and most astounding teachings, even when he doesn't quite understand what the teaching is. I'm just going to go ahead and start by reading a few things from Scott Hahn's article. So he says, The Catholic Church claims that Christ is really present in the Eucharist. 
that the sacrifice of Calvary is repeated at every Mass, and that he gives himself to us in Holy Communion as food unto eternal life. And that's just the doctrine of real presence and representation, which we've already talked about before. Just to clarify a bit, can you explain, so what is taking place in Mass, then, is then the sacrifice of Calvary is repeated at every Mass. Yeah, and he's going to clarify it a little bit later that he's not suffering and he's not bleeding. Well, the way that they talk about it in their doctrine of representation, and, and what that basically does is using Aristotelian ideology that you have the acidens and the substance or the forms mm-hmm. being separate. So what happens is that the substance of the bread and the wine changes into the substance of the body and blood of Christ, but the acidens, which are all of the physically manifested evidence, what you see, what you taste, what you feel, remain that of bread and wine. So you cannot physically tell that it has changed, yet it really has. Uh, And that's how they explain that. And the way that Christ is able to do that is because he has resurrected and because he has suffered, and because his suffering was this infinite thing, that he is able to represent what he went through to the Father without having to re-engage in that process himself physically. He's able to reflect that past experience, that infinite experience to God again and again, and so thus, and also to us, and so therefore we are able to participate in that sacrifice again and again and again. And the idea then, and to see if I've gotten it, got this right, it's not that it's repeated, but that in a sense that eternal moment is one that we can enter into again and again in the Mass. Yes. And well, I'll skip ahead and quote, uh, Scott Hahn says, that's the whole point of the resurrection, incidentally. And, and I'll read it again in, in the broader quote when we get to it. So, I mean, he's making no, no small point. For him, the resurrection is not significant in the sense of giving us hope for us ourselves attaining resurrection, which I think is kind of the clear message you get throughout the Gospels and and especially in the Pauline writings. No, the point of the resurrection, the reason Jesus had to be raised, is so that he can continue to present himself. He can make himself available as the Lamb of God to be consumed continuously. And that's precisely what you're going to disagree with. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So Scott Hahn makes another claim. He says, what happens when you differentiate and separate body and blood? You signify death. When your body and blood are separated, death begins. And I have to agree with that statement. What I disagree with this is application. Jesus is not emphasizing that for the sake of the death itself, but that we are to pick up our crosses and imitate his act of selflessness. And that's, that's the last thing he tells Peter in this gospel is that he, he himself is going to take the same cup that Jesus had. So here's another quote from Han. No wonder St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Therefore what? Therefore we don't have any more sacrificial offerings or ceremonies or feasts and so on to celebrate because all those ceremonies are outdated and done with? No, he says, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the feast. And he goes on to talk about how we take out the leaven of insincerity and we, we have this unleavened bread. What's he talking about? Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Therefore, we've got to achieve the whole goal of that sacrifice. The second half is communion, where we eat the lamb. 
Now you can't eat a lamb cookie in Egypt. If you didn't like lamb, you couldn't have your wife make lamb bread, little biscuits in the shape of lamb, and say, God, you understand, we just can't stand the stuff. No, you do that, your firstborn would die. You had to eat the lamb. Jesus Christ has said to us, My flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has everlasting life. So he's making an exact literal equation between the lamb sacrificed in the Old Testament and its literal consumption by the Jews and Jesus. Yeah, yeah. I think just being trapped in this literal understanding, and I can see why you you would make the confusion because when we first read what Nicodemus said, uh, you know, his first question, then Jesus answered. It seems like Jesus is explaining the metaphor. But if we look carefully at that, that's actually not the case. It's the same pattern being repeated. He responds with, with confusion, and Jesus lays more on it. And that's exactly the same thing he's doing here. The people are confused, and he lays it on thicker and heavier. But uh, we'll get into that a little bit more later. So the last quote I want to read from Scott Hahn. Christ, through the Holy Spirit, makes himself available as the Lamb of God to be consumed continuously. That's the whole point of the resurrection, incidentally. The Holy Spirit raises up that body and glorifies it so supernaturally that body and blood, which is glorified, may be internationally distributed through the elders and priests of the church so that all of God's children can be bound back to the Father in the new covenant sacrifice of Christ. He didn't die again. He's not bleeding and he's not suffering. He's reigning in glory and giving us his own flesh and blood. So the purpose of the resurrection is to make the death of Christ distributed and available in a literal sense. Yeah, and really kind of the crazy thing, I think, is that where this ends up with Peter at the end is when Jesus says to feed my sheep, he's going to literally read that too. Literally what Jesus is asking to do is to give his flesh and blood to his sheep. But I just find this so fundamentally wrong that the entire purpose of the resurrection is about enabling the representation of the body and blood of Christ. It's really hard to reconcile with Paul's understanding Uh, as far as hope and promise for ourselves. And even the verses in John 6 that Han's quoting, where Jesus talks about enabling eternal life for those who follow him, in the passage where he's talking about giving his flesh and blood. So it can't be just about dying so that he can give his flesh and blood. Life, even in that passage, is talked about. So resurrection, in your understanding, the resurrection is a passage through death and not in in some way that Han seems to be making the death of Christ in some way not a passage that is in some way complete with resurrection, but in fact becomes eternally present through the resurrection. At least for Jesus. I'm not sure how he applies this in general to everyone else. Actually, I really, I don't even have any idea what, if he thinks the resurrection's bodily or not. I, I haven't read that much of him to, or enough of him to know that. But yeah, it definitely is disturbing. And what I found, you know, I, I skipped quite a bit in the article, and he does make a strong effort to back up his claims. He uses a lot of scripture and citations. But what I'm finding, the pattern that I'm finding, is that he's cherry-picking the verses, uh, you know, to support what he wants to say. And he touches on a whole bunch of things. He touches on Luke, Exodus, uh, Corinthians, uh, Revelation, all over the place. But I think just reading through John alone, 
and being careful to look at the whole flow of the story and look at the patterns is enough to undo the whole thing. I want to just read a couple quick quotes from Alexander Campbell. What he says kind of sums up my feeling about it. Also, just kind of the basic idea that he presents is, I think, a, a good way to think about the language that we have in the Catholic Church. First of all, when we talk about things as sacraments. So, Alexander uh, said, But a sacrament, an annual sacrament or a quarterly sacrament, is like the oath of a Roman soldier from which it derives its name, often taken with reluctance and kept with bad faith. It is sad as a funeral parade, the knell of the parish bell that summons the mourners to the house of sorrow, and the token that awakens the recollection of a sacramental morn, are heard with equal dismay and aversion. The seldomer they occur, the better. And so what he's saying is that really this theology is developed from an apologetic for a Roman soldier, but it, it kind of reverts and turns, the religion itself turns back into the sacred oath of a Roman soldier. I think that should kind of give us some pause to think about what we mean when we talk about sacraments. He goes on to say, We speak of them as they appear to be, and if they are not what they appear to be, they are mere exhibitions of hypocrisy and deceit, and serve no other purpose than as they create a market for silks and calicoes, and on occasion for the display of beauty and fashion. Which uh, is a little bit dated language, but in other words, if the way we practice communion doesn't inspire us to live like Jesus, then the only thing a church assembly is good for is to provide incentive to buy expensive clothes to show off to each other. And he says, Amongst the crowds of the thoughtless and superstitious that frequent them, it is reasonable to expect to find a few sincere and devout, but this will not justify their character, else the worshippers of saints and angels might be excused, for many sincere and devout say, Amen. In other words, most people are just filling pews, but for the few of us who may be earnest and devout, yet agree to practice such a diminutive form of communion, and act like the two-faced Roman soldiers forced to serve an emperor feigning to be a god, we're responsible for that. He, he's making a definite turn from Han. Tell, explain to me then what that turn is. Basically what he's saying is that approaching it as a sacrament, what we end up doing is establishing exactly the wrong relationship with God. It's more like the compulsory act of service that a, a soldier has, rather than giving up of yourself with joy because of the hope that you have in resurrection. You know, it, it's, it's just, where is the focus? Is the focus on the, the anger and the punishment and the threat of God, like it was with Rome, the threat of crucifixion? Or is it the promise of resurrection, no matter what the world does to you? Is it the hope of the Spirit, the conquering of sin, all those things? So it's just a very different approach. And what Campbell's saying is that, you know, you go to these sacraments, you participate in these things, and they're really just superstitious because they don't change you. Mm -hmm. Whatever they're doing mystically, it doesn't change who you are. And the experience ends up degrading into that, what we've talked about in the house church thing, you know, the, the artifice and acting like everything's okay and presenting, showing off who you are, being successful with, without really, really even caring about what's happening. He's kind of doing a double critique there, isn't he? That he's he's obviously departing from a Catholic understanding, but he's also critiquing a Protestant understanding that would not find a depth of transformative meaning in the communion. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think the problem with the Protestant movement, and I think this is, well, I mean, it's obvious, that we really haven't rejected the whole Constantinian system. We still use a lot of the same terminology. And, and what he's arguing in, in the larger portion of, of this writing here uh, is, is really against all denominations that do not regularly practice communion. But here in the Catholic Church, even though you know, Mass is regularly celebrated or, or practiced, I guess I should say, <laughs> it's still a sacrament. So he's, he's dealing with two issues. One is the sacrament nature of it. The other is the regularity. So yeah, this is equally a critique of uh, false Protestant practices as well as as it is of Catholic practice. So Campbell's point is that both have made the same mistake, and that is that there is not a real transformation of people's lives in communion with Christ. Right. And in our previous talks on communion, I've quoted some of his other passages where he talks about how it's a joyous thing that... Christ never bit, sends his disciples away hungry or thirsty. It's a joyous feast, etc., etc. It's a it's a table rather than an altar. So the basic question where we're approaching this, you know, when, when we're told in Corinthians to keep the feast, are we told to keep the feast because it itself has some kind of mystical power, or are we keeping the feast because of what it represents as far as our responsibility and our gratitude for being a part of this kingdom? And that's what this story, I think, is going to unfold for us. As we go through John, if we look for some key themes, if we, if we look at the story of Peter and Nicodemus, who only appear a few times throughout the, the book, I'm going, to, I'm going to actually summarize every single thing that's mentioned about Peter and Nicodemus, uh, and then every appearance of the words ruler and kingdom and king. And as we do this, before you do it, what's the significance of this? Peter and Nicodemus are kind of representative. They're both on the knife's edge of, of believing and following Jesus. And what you're going to see pitted throughout John, and, and you know, I'm going to be reading selectively from John, so I'm not going to cover everything that John's about. But John, I think you've pointed out, and you've done quite a bit on the podcast about you know, what John is about, uh, that there's these contrasts, the light and the dark. There's this world and the, the world of light and the world of dark. There's the, you know, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. And the, the kind of the key thing throughout John, a lot of people talk about John as making these strong claims about divinity, which is not untrue, but there's a lot of things that are missing from John that you would expect to be there, such as the transfiguration. And I think really what the main point of John is that establishing that Jesus is this king of a different order, of a different kingdom, of a different world, and the reason that that's established is not for the claim of divinity as much as demonstrating the importance of walking in the light, living in that kingdom, participating and following Jesus wherever he will go. And that's ultimately where we end up at the very end of John is that Peter's told to follow Jesus the same way after Peter now really finally knows what that means. And let me, state, let me state the obvious here, that you're doing this in the Gospel of John and setting us in, giving us this larger framework because it's precisely here that you get the strong, literal reading, uh, you know, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Is that, is that right? Yeah, yeah. It, it's right in the middle in chapter 6 during one of those really strong 
claims. Yeah, Peter and Nicodemus. So they're they're tottering, and Peter definitely turns into the light, right? He he is following Jesus the best he can throughout the book. And there's a lot of things missing uh, about Peter in this book. When he uh, denies Jesus, it does not talk about him weeping. When he when Jesus walks on the water, it does not talk about him getting out and, and going with him. There's a lot left out. And the only things that are left are the things that play into this theme of Peter following Jesus. Everybody knows Nicodemus is only mentioned three times. And again, it's about that same topic. And so we kind of see two different approaches. Nicodemus's name is corresponded directly to the word ruler. Now, a lot of translations will, will uh, you know, the Greek word is archon. It only occurs seven times in seven verses in the entire book of John. And Nicodemus is there for almost every single one of those. <laughs> and um, he is called a ruler as well. Most translations will call him a leader or an authority among the Jews, but uh, it's the same word as used for the ruler of this world and, and the other couple places that it pops up. Mm-hmm. Kingdom only pops up five times in three verses. As we read this, we're going to see right where those you know, the significance of that is. And the word king is only used 16 times in 13 verses, and every single one of them is a reference to Jesus. I mean, Jesus isn't the only king, but Jesus is king in the same sentence. So it's uh, Jesus is a king or the emperor is the king. You know, we have no king but the emperor, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So with that in mind, if we follow through the story, what we're going to see is that the flesh and blood of Christ has a lot less to do with literal interpretation uh, of actually consuming Jesus physically and much more uh, of a, I think, a meaningful interpretation of letting that blood and, and body separate just like Jesus did, eating the same kind of food, and by that meaning, doing the same thing that Jesus did. We're going to enter into the same walk and end up basically carrying the cross like he did. You know, even if, as you think of the feeding of the 5,000 and then the discourse on the bread of life after the feeding of the 5,000, if what you're saying were not the case, that is, if Jesus is, you know, he rebukes them for, you know, you're seeking food and you're seeking, uh, that's why you're following me. It seems like a literal reading would almost play into uh, what the crowd is seeking and saying, yeah, I'll give you food. Uh, here's, here's my flesh and blood. But of course, what he's doing in, in your uh, you're going to lay it out for us, is no, he's in fact undoing, contradicting that kind of literal understanding. Yeah, so let's just go ahead and get started uh, going through John, and, uh, and we'll just see what happens as we go along. First thing that we have is Peter's name is mentioned. It is noted that Andrew, Simon's brother, heard John testify that Jesus was the Messiah, so he recruited Simon. When Jesus saw him, he gave Simon the name Peter. And at at this point, there have been no words or deeds of Peter recorded. So then shortly after that, Nathanael affirms that Jesus is the Son of God, King of Israel. Then a few chapters later, Nicodemus is a ruler who comes to Jesus by night, saying to Jesus that he must come from God on account of his signs. So Jesus immediately tells him, that no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus is confused and asks how any grown person could re-enter the mother's womb. Jesus reiterates that one must be born of water and spirit to enter the kingdom of God. 
Nicodemus is now even more perplexed, asking how can these things be? Jesus says that if a teacher of Israel can't understand these earthly things, comprehending the heavenly things will be unattainable for him. He references the bronze, spirit, the bronze serpent, saying that he will be lifted up so that all who believe in him may have eternal life. He concludes by observing that many love to walk in darkness rather than light, which is probably with particular irony for Nicodemus, having chosen to visit in the night, but that those who do what is true come to the light so that their deeds can be seen to have been done in God. And it's, it's interesting with Nicodemus that his problem seems to be that he, t he is reading Jesus' words with an overly literal interpretation. Yeah, and I think what a lot of people will do is to say, oh, well, Jesus explained the metaphor there. But that's not what happened, because if you look carefully, you, you know, the first thing he said is you have to be born from above. Nicodemus says, well, how can you re-enter your mother's womb? Jesus says that you have to be born of water and spirit. That confuses him more. That was not an explanation that made sense to Nicodemus. Nicodemus said, how can these things be after that explanation? Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of people say, obviously this one was metaphoric, and then the later one in John 6 was not a metaphor. But that's not what Nicodemus thought. <laughs> you know, what -hmm. Jesus said confused him even more. So what I'm, what I'm saying is that later on when we get to 6 where he's talking about his flesh and blood, He's using the same pattern. When the people are confused, he's confusing them more. That does not mean that he's speaking literally. Right, right. That he's, uh, he's confounding them. Yeah. Shortly after that, we have uh, Jesus encountering the Samaritan woman. One of the key things about that is it's another one of those grand claims. He, you know, he talks about himself being the living water. And one of the things I think was very key there is that the disciples left him to go get food. They come back, and they're saying, hey, Jesus, eat. And he says, I have food that you know nothing about. Again, this confusion, thinking he's speaking literally. Mm -hmm. uh, who Did one of the Samaritan people give him food? You know, why is he eating with them? He says, no. The food that I have is to do the will of him who sent me. Okay? And I think that's pretty key. Mm-hmm that food, you know, that, that kind of repeats because that's what the disciples are to be consuming. And mm -hmm. in the end, I think ultimately when, when he tells G Peter to be feeding his sheep, I really think that it's about bringing them into consuming the same kind of food, which is doing the will of God. Mm -hmm. But we'll see that unfold as we go. And of course, in self-sacrificial service. Yeah, well, I think primarily. But uh, yeah, that becomes abundantly clear with Peter. Mm -hmm. So we move on from the Samaritan woman. And uh, in John 6, it's noted that Andrew, Peter's brother, told Jesus that the boy had five barley loaves and two fish, but it wouldn't go far with this many people. So then Jesus feeds the 5,000. Jesus withdraws to get away from the people because they would make him king by force. Later on, he's found on the other side of the sea, and he tells the crowd that they only want more food. That's why they're there to see him. And instead, what they should do is believe him. So they ask him for a sign so that they would believe him, mentioning in particular that Moses gave them manna to eat right after he told them not to look for food. 
But I think there's a reason for that. You know, we're pretty quick to, to jump on, on them and judge them. But actually, in the apocryphal book of Baruch, with which the Jews would have been familiar at the time, it says, And it will happen at that time that the treasury of manna will come down again from on high, and they will eat of it in those years, because these are they who have arrived at the consummation of time. Mm. So they considered that to be a messianic passage, and they, they were all familiar with it. So, from their perspective, this request for a sign was reasonable, and it was practical. But Jesus didn't appreciate either of those aspects, because they missed the point. He then goes on and repeats that pattern we have with Nicodemus. He confounds the crowd by demanding that they drink his blood and eat his flesh. And then when they're confused, he makes it even more extreme, I think two or three times. Mm-hmm. Keeps going harder and harder and harder, until finally, they all leave. But one key verse that I do want to point out is verse 57. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever eats me will live because of me. Which I think is pretty key, because what he's talking about here is more of this participation thing, that whatever this, you know, consuming him is supposed to be leading to life, like Jesus has, the kind of life that Jesus has. And mm-hmm. I think if we think back to that earlier quote there, where, okay, with Nicodemus, where he mm-hmm. says that those who do what is true come to the light so that their deeds can be seen to have been done in God. So the difference between those who walk in the darkness and those who walk in the light, it's really about motivation, who they're serving, why they're doing what they're doing. And so if we're following Jesus, living like he lived, we are living in this new kingdom, and what is going to be exposed is not condemnation and unrighteousness, but rather righteousness and faithfulness. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's talking about participating in that. You know, verse 57, he says, just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. In other words, he's equating the two things. I have life in the Father in the same way that you have life in me. No one would talk about Jesus eating the Father. Well, right, yeah, I, yeah. I, sh- I should have probably stated that. Yeah, and and just as the Living Father sent me, I think the co- the corollary to that is so I'm sending you. But f- mm-hmm. somehow they just couldn't make the mental connection that when Jesus was saying "consume me," he was really meaning live like me. Which I think, really, if you kind of think about the relationship that Jesus has with the Father, you know, I've done nothing except what I've seen the Father done. I've only done what he's told me to do. You know, as far as consuming, I really haven't looked into what the word means in Greek or how it's used. Not that that usually makes much of a difference, but him taking in the Father, you know, kind of like the way David would talk about uh, meditating on Scripture, you know. Mm -hmm. Just as a deer pants uh, for the water, so he longs for, for God. You know, I don't think this is an erotic type of thing, as is often expressed in our contemporary music. And I don't think that it is a, uh, you know, pointless, repetitious desire, 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 like some kind of mental disorder or something, uh, or psychosis. But it is the simple desire of food for sustenance for living. Uh, so this consumption, you know, we're just talking about taking in the presence of God, taking in the spirit of God, taking in the word of God and embodying that in our lives. And that is what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about eating him, just like he ate the father. Mm-hmm. So we could, if we, we could translate this, this sentence in half either way, 
just as I ate the Father, you eat me, you'll live like I've lived. Or we could translate it the other way, just as the Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so I'm sending you, and you will live because of me. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I think he kind of gave all the interpretive keys right in that verse. That it's clearly he's giving us a metaphor. He gives us the key to the metaphor. Does not mean a literal food or a literal eating. Right. And, and it's almost intentional. I mean, there's a few other explanations for why. It, it sure seems like whatever your view is on the authorship or the, the dating of John come after the other Gospels, and maybe he's being a little corrective. You know, maybe he's trying to, to really make the claims for Jesus' divinity in such a way as to enforce the understanding that you have to live like him. Because in the account of the Lord's Supper, Jesus' washing feet, which doesn't happen in the other Gospels, but what happens in the other Gospels, doing this thing where he passes around the cup and the bread, saying that it's his flesh and blood, does not happen in John. It is not there at all. It's in every other gospel, and it's in Corinthians even. It is not in John. So if that understanding of eating and drinking his blood, uh, or eating his flesh, drinking his blood, was so key, and the literal understanding of John 6 was the way to do it, then it should be at the Lord's Supper, but it's not. As a matter of fact, Scott Hahn, therefore, has to quote Luke when he's talking about that that uh, event. So, yeah, I think I don't think that's for no reason. I, I think that's exactly why it's left out, or at least it could be uh, one explanation that, taken with all these other factors, seems to make a lot of sense as for what's being omitted. You know, I think a lot of theologians and scholars just kind of say, John's covering material that was missed in the other ones, but there's also a lot of parallel. And so what, what, what is the justification for taking some stuff in that's already been talked about and leaving stuff out that's been talked about somewhere else? Now, I think it's thematic. There's a theme, there's a point he's trying to make, and that's why he's leaving some things out and putting other things in that weren't in the other Gospels. And so you're, you're giving us the big theme of John, that it is this new participation you know, thinking there of the the uh, John fourteen fifteen, abiding in the Father, you abide in me as I abide in the Father, and that this then is worked out in a new, that that abiding is going to give uh, come forth in a servant shepherd kind of attitude, and that's all tied in then to consuming Jesus, following Jesus. Yeah. So he turns to the twelve and says, you want to leave too? And now the first words we have and the first deeds of Peter in this entire book, Peter says, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Uh, I just, I think that that's the way we're introduced to Peter and John. And he only pops up a few times after that. And it's all about Peter doing just that, believing him, following him, trying to follow him. And, and, you know, this is kind of the same thing with Nicodemus. We're introduced to him coming to Jesus and saying, we know that you're from God because no one else could do the signs that you're doing. But they're both going to have different levels of success. Nicodemus, oh, I don't want to give it away. We'll get to it when we get to it. Okay. It's good. It's, it's coming. It's coming. All right. <laughs> all right. 
So, you know, we've come to believe that you are the Holy One of God. And right after that, Jesus' own brothers don't believe what Jesus is doing and suggest that he should go to Judea so that he can become known, presumably to rise to power. After healing on the Sabbath and being sought for execution, the people wonder if the rulers or authorities really knew that Jesus was the Messiah because he's now speaking openly again. After the temple police returned without arresting Jesus, giving only the excuse, never has anyone spoken like this, the Pharisees become irate and scold them, noting that no rulers or authorities or Pharisees believed in him, only the ignorant crowd. Now Nicodemus here comes in for the second time, and it notes specifically that he is one of them, one of these rulers and authorities. He mm -hmm. states that the law doesn't judge without first giving the person a hearing, and they promptly shot him down by asking if he was from Galilee too. <laughs> mm. So he doesn't make as strong a claim as Peter does, but he does try to advocate a little bit. You know, like he's 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 staying right on that edge. You know, Peter's clearly turned turned into the light to be walking into the light. Nicodemus, he's still kind of there, hasn't really turned off off that dividing line between dark and light. And John seems to be making a theological point with Nicodemus. Yeah, giving us Nicodemus as a kind of you know, here's somebody who throughout the, the gospel is ambiguous. I think this is his last line, though he appears again to ask for the body of Jesus. He actually has no spoken part. Am I right in that? Yeah. Uh, after this. So here's the last words of this guy. And I think that John is bringing him in for the reason you're saying that he is kind of representative of a sort of ruler. Yeah, and uh, I think kind of the idea you're getting here is that if you're one of them and you're not willing to walk away from that position, because later on he says, uh, well, let's just get to it. We'll get to it. I'll force your point in a couple seconds here. Um, okay. So the next thing, quite you know, a few chapters. So this is chapter 7. Jump ahead to chapter 12, the triumphal entry. Jesus proclaimed king of Israel. The scripture is quoted about the king riding on a donkey's colt. And then Jesus is troubled about his impending death, asking if he should ask the Father to save him. But then he says, no, it's for that reason that he came. He asks the Father to glorify his name, and God audibly replies that he has and will again. The crowd hears it, and Jesus tells them that the ruler of this world will be driven out, and that by being lifted up, all people will be drawn to him. They're encouraged to walk in the light while they still have it, because in the darkness they won't know where they're going. But then Jesus leaves and hides them because few believed in spite of his many signs. And scripture is quoted explaining why they didn't believe, but it is noted that many, even among the rulers, believed, but kept it secret out of fear of the Pharisees and being put out of the synagogue. And John specifically says, because they loved human glory more than glory from God. And I think, you know, this is a few chapters ahead, but the reason Nicodemus was pointed out as being one of them and then kind of we have this revisited again with these authorities. Nicodemus isn't the only authority. Mm -hmm. There's quite a few rulers who are believing, but secretly out of fear because they like human glory more than glory from God. They're afraid of the Pharisees and they're afraid of being put out of the synagogue. It's almost like there's a believing in John that is an inferior. In other words, he, he, uh, he gives us you know, several levels. 
he talks about the Jews in uh, using that as a classification of rejecting Jesus. But here he's talking about the rulers of the Jews who they at least at some level believe, but they still then are stuck in a kind of ambiguous position. It's like John is saying, you don't want to be like this, you know, you're, you don't want to be in, in this sort of ambiguity, imagining that you can believe in Jesus and still love human glory more than the glory of God. Yeah, well, I, so I think what you get here, the, the levels of belief I think you have are you believe with your mind, and then you believe with your all, your body, your actions, your your walk, right? Mm -hmm. And And here Nicodemus and these other rulers... They're believing with their mind. They accept what Jesus is saying, but they're not willing to live like it. And, and so right here, this is, that's ver chapter 12, verse 43. And just a few verses later, in John 13, 6, here's the next thing we hear about Peter, the second thing Peter done. He tells Jesus that Jesus will never wash his feet. <laughs> Jesus says unless he did, Peter would have no part with him. Peter then says, wash everything. Wash my head and the hands too. Mm -hmm. I think what we have here is these people who are comfortable and successful in the synagogues and, and among the Jews, reputable people who believe what Jesus is saying, but they're too comfortable with where they are to lose what they have in order to follow Jesus to get the true value of the kingdom of God. Peter, being a fisherman, being somebody with, you know, there's a lot of argumentation like, you know, were these people rejects that didn't have the opportunity to go and study under a rabbi and, you know, that Jesus was kind of the only person in the world that accepted them. You know, we could speculate on that. But essentially, I think Peter is in a position where he doesn't have much to lose and he acts like it a lot, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Even among the disciples, Peter, and I think especially the way John is, Peter's kind of like the voice of them. You know, he does a lot of the talking, and uh, he's the first to say, Jesus, you're not going to do that. You're far above me, He, you know, because he respects Jesus. He's following him, and he's not understanding what, you know, Jesus is saying about, I'm not that kind of ruler. But Peter gets it eventually, right? So what we have is immediately contrasting the ambiguous, comfortable, low-risk type of belief versus the fully engaged, risking everything type of belief. Mm -hmm. And uh, what we kind of see is, is where that ends up. It doesn't mm -hmm. end up with success for Peter in, in the terms of the world, but he ends up inheriting the kingdom of God is what happens. It means laying down your life in the manner that Jesus laid down his life. Right. Well, and on that topic, the next thing Peter does when Jesus mentions that he's going to be betrayed, he motions for the beloved disciple to ask Jesus who would betray him. So then... Peter asked Jesus where he would go that he could not follow because he was willing to lay down his life for Jesus. But Jesus predicts his denial instead. And again, so at this point, you know, this is the Lord's Supper, just pointing out again that nowhere in John is the mention of the blood and flesh here in relation to the cup and the bread. All the other Gospels and Corinthians mention it, and given the flesh and blood in chapter 6, we would expect it to be in here. If, that's, if it was meant to be interpreted literally. But what we have instead, throughout this whole discourse, as we go into the next chapter, the next chapter, uh, especially, you know, the vine, uh, 
and <clears throat> where he talks about the new commandment to love one another, what we have is the motif of death and resurrection, darkness versus light, a different kingdom, and a call to follow Jesus, to love as he has loved. Which may, may relate, in, in a literal sense, Peter was willing to lay down his life for Jesus. Yeah. And, and that's demonstrated in you know the garden when he strikes off the ear of Malchus. He's willing to go down in a blaze of glory in a, in a battle. But he's still missing it. He's still missing the specific nature of this kingdom and sacrifice. Yeah, Peter is willing to die for Christ. And, he, I, th and I think we think Peter wasn't really willing to, but no, he was. He went out and struck off the ear of the high priest's slave. I mean, that's, <laughs> you got to have a little bit of guts to do that. What broke Peter was when Jesus told him, no, I must drink the cup that the Father gave me. That Peter didn't get. I was going to die for you, but now you're saying we're just going to take it? I, th I thought you were going to be the king. Right? He still didn't understand what kind of king, the, uh, king Jesus was going to be. Uh, nobody does until the end. But before that, Jesus <clears throat> is talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit, and he says that he will not talk about his, with his disciples for much longer because the ruler of this world is coming, and that ruler has no power over him, but he will lay down his life for the sake of the world. Then he goes on, he's explaining more about the Spirit, and, he's, and then he promises similar trials and persecutions for his followers. And then Jesus specifically states that part of the work of the Spirit will be to prove that the world is wrong about sin, righteousness, and judgment. And the specific part about judgment where the world is wrong is that the ruler of this world has been condemned. And then we have that event we just talked about, Jesus attacking the high priest slave, Jesus heals him. Can we back up a minute here? Yeah. That isn't there then a specificity, you know, that John is, is laying this out in a, a clear theological order. Peter is, and Nicodemus, they're all still on the wrong side. They still then do not understand how Satan will be defeated. The ruler of this world has no power over him because the ruler of this world exercises his power precisely in and through the kind of attitude you encounter in Nicodemus, even in Peter, and in the, the, the Jews, in, in John's you know, usage of that term. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, obviously. So the, the power of the, of the world is is death and destruction. Un, I kind of like to think of it in terms of creation versus uncreation, mm -hmm. uh, because I think that really fits the, the the larger motif of not just John, but the entire Bible in terms of creation. That God's authority and power is in creation, and the opposite of that is the ruler of this world. And Peter then attacks Malchus, and then demonstrates that he, in fact, is still serving death in that he would deal out death in the matter of the kingdom of Satan. Right. And uh, I think, especially as Jesus encounters Pilate and during his trial, the term king and kingdom pops up a lot and kind of makes that clear. After this, Peter, uh, Jesus is taken away and, then, and Peter follows... And he denies him the three times. Of particular note is that on one of those occasions, it's it's 
clearly noted that he was warming himself by a charcoal fire, because that pops up again later on. So then Pilate asks Jesus if he's the king of the Jews. So Jesus tells him that his kingdom is not of the world. So Pilate asks again, well, you are some kind of king then. And then Pilate asks the crowd if they would wish the king of the Jews to be released. So then Jesus is repeatedly mocked as king of the Jews and slapped on the face. Then the Jews cry out that anyone who claims to be a king sets himself against the emperor. Pilate brings him out and says, here is your king. Then they demand that he's crucified. He asks if he should crucify their king, to which they reply that they have no king but the emperor. And upon crucifying Jesus, Pilate puts up an inscription, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. The chief priests asked Pilate to change it to say that he claimed to be king of the Jews, but Pilate says, what I have written, I have written. And I think it's noted there he wrote it in three languages so that everybody would understand what was written. Aramaic, Latin, Greek. Hmm. Yeah, so everyone, in particular the Jews, <laughs> would see that. So pretty key stuff there, this play back and forth between not understanding what kingdom and what kind of king and, you know, Pilate, there's a lot of detail there, but what I want to do is condense it down so you can see the interplay between king and kingdom and, and how centralized it just kind of comes to a culmination in this point here. And if you miss that, what Jesus is saying is what you said earlier, that his kingdom is operating on creation, life, whereas mm. Pilate is threat of death. Don't you see I can let you go or kill you? And, of course, Jesus says, you would have no power over me unless it was given from above. And, and clearly, in the end, we see who wins this battle. But kind of another interesting thing here is that John, is, it's the only gospel that tells about Jesus' side being pierced, and it mentions a mix of blood and water flowing out. And just kind of this kind of a side point, I guess. But to me, I've always considered Luke to be kind of the technical historical book. Dr. Dole has uh, had a pretty interesting presentation of how Luke is imitating the writing style of Polybius, one of the first kind of modern style historians that was writing for the sake of accuracy rather than to make their benefactors look good. Mm -hmm. And uh, so Luke is the longest one and it has the most specific references to detailed medical conditions of the healings, specific ways to date specific places and rulers. You know, everything's very specific. And in uh, a lot of apologetic material, this mixture of blood and water flowing out of Jesus' side is often described as a particular medical condition, and it's associated with Jesus' suffering being so great that he died of a broken heart. And I, I don't know whether or not that's true or not, but what, what I found kind of strange is if that was a medical thing, uh, and that was the significance of this being written down, wouldn't that have been in Luke? Because he was always on top of those medical terms. Mm -hmm. What I'm kind of wondering... I've never read anybody else say this, so I don't know if this is legitimate or not. But in light of Nicodemus being told that you have to be born of water and spirit, is there any kind of significance here that Jesus is pierced and blood and water flows out of him? Because if you go back to chapter 1, verse 13, the author notes that John the Baptist gave those who would believe the power to become children of God not born of blood or the will of flesh. And another interesting thing is that the only other place that blood pops up in the entire book besides this is, and then that first chapter there, is in chapter 6 when Jesus says to eat and drink his blood. I mean to drink his blood and eat his flesh. 
flesh only appears in the opening of the gospel, which I just read there, when Jesus tells Nicodemus that what is born of flesh is flesh and spirit is spirit, in chapter 6 when he demands that his flesh be eating, also noting that the spirit gives life while the flesh is useless. So flesh and blood are only mentioned in relation to those three things, the opening and here, and then one with Nicodemus and one with chapter 6. So those two words are very, very rare in John. They only occur around these themes. Uh, I don't mean to draw off that point, but of course the word water is thematic in John. Oh yeah, yep. Yeah, that appears all over the place. And and so, the, you know, if you think of the significance of the blood and water flowing out, you know, think here of Jesus that, you know, from out of me, you know, that will flow springs yep. of living water. Yeah, Samaritan woman. And, and so that's what's kind of interesting about this. These words that only appear rarely, blood and flesh, which is with Nicodemus and with Peter, with the first crazy claim and with the second crazy claim, and then water, which is thematic, but it kind of, I think the most significant part about that flowing with water is with the Samaritan woman, right? I mean, that's kind of the, the situation that sticks out the most. So here you have those three stories that are right together, those three characters. And I didn't talk much about the Samaritan woman, but I could have mixed her in just as much, even though she only pops up once. She's kind of a key figure among those who are tottering on the edge of darkness and light. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of funny that right here, all of those things tie together, blood, flesh, and water. You know, and then in chapter one, two, where it opens, that life, you know, power to become children of God, not born of blood or the will of flesh. It's kind of interesting how those things kind of tie together. And it's, it, well, only, the only reason I mention that is to just kind of ask the question, you know, is this here there for the sense of the symbolism that it provides? Uh, and, and of course, the symbolism may go clear back. This is Karl Barth, but I think Karl Barth is making reference, you know, even to a, a long-standing tradition, that just as the woman was taken out of the side of Adam, so too the bride, the church, is marked then as emerging from the side of Jesus, that the blood and water that flows out you know, whether you want to go with that metaphor, that is the way that some have gone and say, saying that the appearance of water, new life, new life given, you know, through the body of Christ, the church, that here is the first appearance. But of course, in, in John, the church is already, he's already referencing it in, in uh, many different ways. So it it's at least in terms of the life of Christ, you could connect it to uh, the emergence of the church. Mm. That's interesting. But is that from uh, what's Bart's book, Christ is Adam? Or uh... I couldn't tell you. I'd have to go back. Uh, I'm not sure. Probably is. I, I knew I should have finished reading that. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, so then we're, we're getting pretty close to the end here. Now Nicodemus is last act to come... And it says specifically, he had first come by night. He brings a hundred pounds of myrrh and aloes to help prepare Jesus' body for burial. And I'm going to get back to that in just a second, but I want to, I want to read the next part, which is, then Mary Magdalene runs to tell Peter that the body of Jesus was gone. 
Peter and the beloved disciple run to the tomb. Peter's outrun, but then once Peter arrives, he actually goes into the tomb first. They both did not understand, but they believed that the body was taken or was missing. And, and what's interesting there is the last we hear from Nicodemus is he's helping put Jesus in the grave. And Peter is coming to the grave when it's empty. And then, of course, later on, you know, he sees Jesus risen. Mm-hmm. Now, who knows what happens with Nicodemus? I mean, we never really do know. Later on in Acts, a lot of, a lot of the authorities do fully end up following Jesus. So we, we don't know. But at least the way John's telling it, you know, there's that ambiguity there. And that seems to be what, in other words, John's point is not to tell us about this guy, Nicodemus. John's point is to make an illustration that the one, you know, even here in John 19, he's still identifying Nicodemus as the ruler who had first come to John to Jesus by night. And in this scene, it's Joseph of Arimathea who actually requests the body, and yes. Nicodemus remains silent. And for yep. all eternity, in terms of the theology of John, I think that's sort of where John wants to leave it. Yeah, it definitely seems that way. And like I said, even with Peter, though, there's there's lots about Peter. I mean, like, you know, just a little bit more with Peter. But, I mean, this is it for Peter. There's not much else about Peter. But we know from the other Gospels, there's tons of other stuff that Peter did and said. But he's just leaving out all of that because there's there's a one point he's trying to make. And that is how, Jesus, or how, how Peter is trying to actually follow Jesus in that, in that way. Particularly what comes up next as far as picking up the cross and following Jesus, drinking the same cup as him. That Peter has gone right back to fishing. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which may be indicative that Peter still needs work. He still needs their, their that you're not going to feed sheep fish. <laughs> right. Yeah. He tells them... Let's see who's there. So you've got Simon, you've got Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples. Peter says, I'm going fishing. And they say, we'll go too. So they get out in the boat. They don't catch anything. And, I mean, we all know the story. Jesus appears, tells them to go fish over there. They do it. They catch him. They figure it out that it's Jesus. And as soon as Peter hears that, uh, he puts on some clothes, apparently, because he was naked. I'm not sure exactly how naked that was. But at any rate, he jumps into the sea. He swims ashore. So that same level of excitement, right? I mean, so we just have the excitement of Peter. He wants to see Jesus. He wants to be with Jesus. That's the only thing that matters to him. And <laughs> here he's not even going to help them row the boat in the rest of the way. He wants to get there first, mm-hmm. right? And that's just kind of what we see with Peter. That's his pattern. That's his, uh, who he is. Uh, he wants Jesus. And so he goes in there, goes ashore. There's a charcoal fire there. Very specific to point that out with fish on it and bread. Jesus says, bring in some of what you've caught. So then Peter goes back and helps him tear in the, uh, bring in the net that's ripping apart, being full. So then Jesus invites him to breakfast. So after they ate, and this is kind of the crux of the whole story. Jesus says to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he does this three times. You know that I love you. Feed my lambs. Do you love me? Yes, you know that I love you. Feed, tend my sheep. The third time, do you love me? He's hurt because he said this the third time, you love me. And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. 
And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your belt and go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. After this, he said to him, Follow me. But Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. And he was the one who had reclined next to Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that I, he remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. And, and that's really what the whole thing culminates in. That's what the whole point of this story with Jesus and Peter and Nicodemus and with, with the grand claims that Jesus made, those strange stories, the, the astounding teachings, what it all boils down to is follow me. The, what he predicted about Peter was, you know, that he was going to end up being <clears throat> led to the slaughter like Jesus was. Now, whether that's traditionally as understood being crucified upside down, I don't know. It's, it's really not that specific in here. But, uh, you know, some kind of death that he's not going to want to go to. And it is follow me. In other words, do what I've done. And specifically in being the good shepherd being the one who feeds the sheep. And the way you feed sheep is you follow Jesus. That Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. To, to eat Jesus' flesh and drink his blood is to be a shepherd on the order of Jesus in self-sacrificial service. And this is the true communion. This is the place in which, and, and of course the context uh, in John throughout is the the idea of the church, and the last thing he's talking about is the sheep, the church that Peter is going to feed, and the way that he'll feed them is the way that Jesus fed them through self-sacrificial service. Right, and I think Peter, you know, he's just prototypical. I, I think kind of the way John portrays him is that he's he's speaking on behalf of what everybody else is thinking, more or less, the first to say it, but. What Jesus said to Peter now is the same thing Jesus told all of his disciples earlier in 15 and 16. Because they hated him first, they were going to hate every, hate all of his disciples too. You know, all the persecution and the suffering that he went through, they were going to go through too. So Peter isn't excluded in this thing here. And uh, what a shame it would be if we were to misunderstand this and think what he meant was, as an apostle or as an elder or priest, that Jesus is telling Peter that he's going to have the authority to administer his flesh and blood literally to the sheep would be a terrible misunderstanding of what's really happening here, which is saying, follow me, do what I've done, and by extension, what you're going to be doing for those sheep is leading them to do the same as you are doing, repeating that process of discipleship and bringing people into obedience to Christ, following him to any and all ends. And so maybe what we, if I'm saying it too strongly, stop me. But maybe what we have is two alternative Christianities in these two alternative readings of John. And it's not just Catholic versus Protestant. I think it, in fact, cuts through both of those groups. The one version of Christianity 
would see the application of Jesus' flesh and blood in a kind of the idea of a sacramental partaking than which Jesus is in some way, in a Catholic understanding, continually or at least eternally offering up that sacrifice. But I don't think that that's, you know, even in a, in a Protestant understanding, I think it's a similar idea that Jesus died so that we don't have to. And what you're saying is precisely the opposite, that Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me that this kingdom is not one in which there is a single shepherd or a single sacrificial servant, but Peter, as the prototypical follower, is going to be the one who lays down his life like Jesus. Yeah. And that's the ending of the book of John. I think that basically covers it. And so reading it literally, this is the irony here, reading it literally is the critique that John is making throughout. If, you, if you're taking me literally, he says to Nicodemus, don't you know anything? You, a teacher of Israel, you should know these things. Yeah. It's a, so ironic that in some way that wooden literal reading has remained with us in spite of this John's theological attempt to transform our minds in the language of Paul. Yeah. And I don't think, you know, you know, just kind of observing the, the pattern of Jesus, I mean, that's just kind of what he did. I mean, isn't that what it would said in uh, Isaiah, that the people are going to hear but not understand and, and uh, see but not apprehend? And I don't think Jesus cares so much if people got what he was saying at the time because he knew that they weren't going to be willing to do it anyway. Mm-hmm. And I think kind of this is the importance of Peter. Peter didn't get it until the end and maybe even at this point i don't know maybe he still didn't quite get it maybe it wasn't until pentecost where it was fully understood um and even then paul still corrected him on a couple things so the the thing is though that what peter was willing to do that nicodemus wasn't was that even though he didn't get it he still was going to do the best that he understood to be obedient to what christ was saying as he understood it at the time Right, and so he's always putting himself out there, doing his best to follow and imitate Jesus, even though he he doesn't quite get it. And there's a certain amount of patience that Jesus has with him that he respects that, and and so he's having this conversation with with Peter, bringing him through the experiences necessary to fully understand what's happening. Not to say Peter's the only one doing this, but I mean, you know, that's kind of the focus in here. And I think that's the point that that's being made by the author of the gospel that. Take heart that even though you don't understand, you know, what, what you need to have is that reckless abandon to follow Christ's actions, even though you don't understand why they work. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, I mean, we know now, the resurrection, that's kind of the key, that all these powers are undone. And you definitely see that w- later on in Acts with John and Peter standing up before the Sanhedrin. They, they definitely get it at that point. They're preaching the resurrection. And that's precisely what they tell them to shut up about. And yep. that's, that's, they say, they, they, in other words, what Peter could not do in the garden, what apparently he still was uh, somewhat un- incapable of doing at the end of the gospel, we see him doing before the Sanhedrin Act. Yeah, and specifically that they had no fear. <laughs>
no fear is left. And, oh. and so then, you know, the ruler of the world was usurped, undone, condemned. Death no longer had any kind of authority or anybody who worked under that methodology, that kind of kingdom, had any authority over them. Because the only authority they can exercise is the authority of the sword. Right. Resurrection is uncontainable. Well, this is this is our third talk on communion, and we're we're going to pass on this subject. Obviously, continue to practice it, but I think we have the formation of a practice and understanding of the real presence of Christ. Maybe we can use that language, but I hope from the talk tonight we understand that the place in which Christ is present is not in a literal material juice and, and cracker, but in the body of Christ that has taken up the sacrificial service of Christ. And there we encounter the fullness of the power of the Holy Spirit, and that is a resurrection power uh, that I think is the real presence of